several weeks ago, the Dharma talk was on the archetype of the spiritual warrior. And I'm just wondering how many here tonight were there then? My hands. Okay. Uh, very briefly, the spiritual warrior is really the embodiment of the qualities of clarity and focus and mindfulness. And it's those qualities that allow that archetype within us to act in this world from a place of real compassion and wisdom. So it's the kind of doing, active quality of being that's informed by clarity. Now, in archetypal terms, the inspiration of the warrior is the lover. Think of Camelot, right? The knights go charging off on these courageous missions, always with a keepsake, right? Oh, they're beloved. The inspiration of the warrior is the lover. These moments matter because there's a quality of caring that motivates. It's our deepest nature to care. This quality of the lover, the lover archetype, is, is the deepest essence. It's the primal force in our being. Jung writes this, this is Carl Jung, to be human, one must follow nature, admitting the importance of the unexpected, not controlling, letting go into the mystery. But nothing is possible without love. For love puts one in the mood to risk everything and not to withhold important elements. Nothing is possible without love. There's no wise, compassionate action that's not grounded in this basic quality of love that gives us the courage to live our lives fully. It's the lover in us, that lover archetype, that goes for it that doesn't bury the pain or the fear or the passion or the arrows, but rather lives to connect fully with whatever life is arising that expresses life. So accessing this lover energy is a basic component of Buddhist mindfulness practice, that our practice really is to connect fully moment by moment with just what's happening. And what makes that possible is this quality of the heart that we care about life. It's caring that makes this connection possible. <clears throat> so tonight I'd like to explore more this lover archetype in spiritual life and also what's been described as the shadow lover, the immature lover, which really is all the different ways that we're conditioned to grasp after love or to resist. That's the shadow side. <clears throat> so to start with the mature lover, just to paint that picture and then we'll compare a bit. We all touch the mature archetype of the spiritual one, the lover, at times. We all have a glimmering of it and it's our essence and it's our potential. So we all know it in some deep, intuitive way. We experience the mature lover at times when we're in nature, or with beings that are very, very dear to us. For some, at retreats, when there's been time to quiet down enough to get 
out of the busyness so that we actually are there for our lives. We connect with the mature lover. The lover in us, the mature lover, feels an open-hearted connection with all of life. It's very unconditional. It's not a sense of, I'm in love with this person and that person and that lovely tulip poplar tree, but not the dog with its kind of bedraggled over there and definitely not that person, you know. It's not conditional. The mature lover is living love, just feels a sense of connectedness with it all. This connectedness is experienced as a sense of intimacy in terms of appreciation. The lover has a sense of appreciation. It's aesthetic, it's sensual, it's sexual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's appreciation. It's, ah, life, you know? It's the source of all joy, poetry. It's the life-giving force of the universe. And when we're feeling it, when we're in the archetypal space of the lover, there's no reason to resist anything. There is no struggle, complaint, whatever, with life. Because we become life. We've just become that life energy. There's nothing to resist. We become available to the moments, which is why we meditate. We meditate so that we're able to show up for our lives. And it's this love or energy that motivates us and allows us and is that sense of connectedness. So, 2,500 years ago, when the Buddha taught mindfulness, taught this practice of waking up into our moments, he taught it hand-in-hand with the metta practice, which is loving-kindness. Some of you might know the story of how the metta sutta was first handed out to the monks that were following the Buddha. They would go into the forest and be meditating and then come back out of the forest very frightened because of tigers. There were a lot of tigers in the forests of Asia. And so the Buddha taught the the metta sutta and said, okay, now you can go and and sit there and you will not be, you know, feel like you have to uh, run away because the power of love is such, this power of offering love to our own being and to the world, the warm and good feelings is so powerful, the space is so open and powerful that you can be with any demon and handle it. It's as Trungpa says, all the difficulties become workable when we've opened to that powerful place of connectedness. Metta, our love, gives us the courage to face anything. It's the only space that is powerful enough to handle the enormous angst and grief and fear that runs through us. So the lover intuits oneness, really intuits oneness, and lives in that sense of embeddedness or connectedness, and wants to, through daily life, continue to sense the manifestation of that, that sense of belonging, wants to touch and be touched wants to create art and celebrate nature and and live in that joyful sense with all the senses, living in a very vivid way, very sensitively to, with a lot of sensitivity to what's around and within, so there's real empathy. In the most evolved sense, the lover archetype is what we've been calling bodhicitta. It's the awakened heart. Remember that word? 
bodhicitta. The lover archetype is this awakened heart that is able to see and sense the truth of our connectedness that lives in that love. Now, for most of us, we get tastes of this, and it's delicious, and it feels sacred. It's what we've most cherished is when we touch into this archetype. It is absolute joy. And we live most of our days where that love is in a more contracted form. It's mixed in with fear and with grasping. And that's the shadow of the lover. It's the same energy, the same basic glue that holds together and creates the universe. And yet it's that glue, that, it's that universal love kind of shaped and contorted and contracted by fear and by grasping. So just to take a closer look at the shadow lover, because that one dwells in all of us also. Instead of trusting our feeling belonging to the universe, held by the universe, a part of, the shadow lover feels separate and feels mistrustful. The sense of the shadow lover is, I am separate, I'm apart from, I'm in danger. In order to be whole, in order to be complete, I need this or that, and I can't deal with and have this or that in my life. There's wanting and there's resistance. There's two poles to the shadow lover, and I'm going to address them separately, although most of us have both of them and kind of go back and forth in some ways. We do, we do uh, have more primary tendencies. And one pole is the pole of the shadow lover that grasps on and gets attached to others. There's a sense that this incredible longing for communion might be satisfied if only it works out this way with this person and that way with that person. So the love gets externalized and, and gets attached in a very strong way. It's filled with fear when it's like this. The fear of being rejected, the fear that uh, somebody won't behave in a certain way, the need to possess, the need to control. Thomas Merton describes it this way. He says, love is paradise, and then describes the situation of Adam and Eve in paradise. Everything is yours, but on one infinitely important condition, that it is all given. There is nothing that you can claim, nothing that you can demand, nothing that you can take. And as soon as you try to take something as if it were your own, you lose your Eden. Most of us have had that experience of grasping onto a relationship out of need, really grasping, really holding tight, and finding that in the moment that we start grasping, communion is miles and miles and miles away. That the very nature of trying to hold on separates us from our beloved. Either what happens is that the other withdraws as a result of our grasping, or even if they don't, the fear that's causing us to grasp makes it impossible to trust that the love's there anyway. It just doesn't work. We can't hold on. So the shadow lover can't accept things as is. There's fear and need to control. And for most of us, we've been on both sides. 
where we've been with somebody and we've wanted to change them so they'd be different so they'd satisfy the needs of our insecure shadow lover and we've also been the one that someone else has wanted to change. Isn't that so? I mean, don't we all kind of play both sides of that one? When it happens, when there's this controlling, it's very difficult for either side to feel a sense of connection and appreciation. When someone tries to change us and control us and make us be different, we don't feel seen, we don't feel understood. Some of you know this story, I'll, I'll tell it because it's, it's so beautiful. Uh, it takes place, this boy goes with his parents to a restaurant and the waitress is taking their order. And first the parents give their order and then she turns to the boy and he says, oh, I'll have hot dog, french fries, a Coke. And the dad says, oh, no, he won't. Mm-mm, no, he's having meatloaf and mashed potatoes and he's having milk. And the waitress turns back to the young boy and says, so what do you want on your hot dog? You know? And then she, she, goes, she goes away and the parents are stunned. And the boy turns to his parents and says, you know, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> we don't feel so real when we become an object of other people's needs. And we don't trust what's going on when we make someone else an object and they respond to us. There's all these filters between us and what's true. Jose Ortega Igaset writes that tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. Do you understand that? That who we are is really a manifestation of what we pay attention to. Do we pay attention to the beauty, to who a being really is, to the essence of another? Or is there this big filter of all our ideas of rules and what has to happen in order to be things to be okay? In this picture, you have a judge handing down a decree to Santa Claus in a courtroom. Flying over housetops low, landing on a roof, illegal entry into a residence via chimney, operating a sleigh without a license, keeping wild reindeer confined in harness, creating a disturbance with loud laughter. We all have agendas. It's really hard to get out of them because we all have these needs, but it stops us from seeing and appreciating the ones we love the most. Some friends of mine who've been going through difficulty as a couple for several years were telling me last year one of their dynamics, which was every time she would tell him how much she loved him, he would get all sullen and withdrawn. Like, you know, just really shut down. And they went to therapy and kind of started processing that. And, you know, what is it? You know, she says, I love you. And he just... And it came out that he experienced her expression of love as a demand to respond in a like way and to behave in a certain way, basically on her terms for what it meant to have a love relationship. It's as Jules Pfeiffer puts it, he describes in a cartoon a woman saying, but I love you, and he's saying, don't you threaten me, you know. (laughs) 
the greater the attachment, the greater the need to control, the more the suffering, the more the distance. Because addiction to a person, like any addiction, is incredibly painful. And what it does is it just arises out of pain and shame and it reinforces it when it's acted out. As I mentioned before, when our love is so fear-based, we can never trust that what's coming back to us is really love. And when we're the one feeling loved by an addictive energy, when someone's needing a lot from us, we have a fear of being devoured or suffocated. And usually couples play out those two roles. There's one that's saying, I want more, and the other that's going, you know, don't take my life from me, you know. There's a line in one, I read from one writer, eating is touching, carried to the bitter end. You know? So there's the grasping, the controlling, even the destroying of what we love. There's a movie some of you might have seen or heard of uh, called Mishima. I didn't see it, but I read about it. And in it, this young man, Mishima, is tantalized to the point of obsession with the image of a golden temple, which is really the symbol of the mother or the unconscious. And it's so beautiful to him that it's painful. And it becomes so painful that in order to break free, he needs to burn it. Do you know that we want to ins- we, we desperately want something, and then the wanting becomes so painful, we just want to destroy the object of desire. And that's what he does. He has to destroy the alluring and enchanting feminine beauty that would keep him from his independence, from his manhood. So destroying what we love. So one, one pole of the shadow, then, is this enormous sense of incompletion and longing and holding on tight to certain people or objects or ideas or whatever that makes us feel more whole. The other pole is that we fight the intensity of eros, of longing, by deadening it, by pushing it under, by armoring against it. In this case, what we do to avoid the intensity or fear or failure of this longing is really go into a place of feeling very flat and sterile and dead. And what I most notice, and I mentioned earlier, is that we swing, that we can have these rushes of of feeling very drawn and kind of grasping after what we love and then then in some way hit a hit a block or a wall and shut down and it can happen in a period of a few minutes or a few years to swing to those poles of of the grasping after love and then the resisting the intensity of love in our life so this side of the shadow lover that I'm describing now feels dead and dull and unresponsive. And then in relationships, there's a sense of being very habitual, very unalive, not quite there, skimming the surface. I described a few months ago in here the line that the dying process begins at birth, but it accelerates at dinner parties. And so many have that sense of going through the day, but not really having that aliveness and spontaneity and passion. And that's the shadow lover. That's we've pushed under the possibility. (coughs) Because what contact during the day doesn't have the potential for awakening and for love? 
any day we move through with any person or animal or tree or whatever, there's just unlimited potential to feel the eros and love of this universe. So the shadow lover has given up in some way. It's too much, it's too painful, it gets shoved under, and then there's this dull, robotic, habitual way of moving through. The poet that writes of love in all the dimensions so beautifully, Rumi, writes of this bit of the shadow side when he says this. I saw you last night in the gathering, but could not take you openly in my arms, so I put my lips next to your cheek, pretending to talk privately. So our fear-based reactivity around love either leads to this kind of holding on tight, addictive kind of behavior, the grasping, or to this resistance, this kind of pretending, the facade, the dulling, the deadening. And in the Buddhist scriptures, these two aspects of reactivity are described as the near enemy of love. That's the near enemy of love. It comes from the same fiery source. It's the same intensity and life force as love. And yet it's contracted in fear out of the sense of separateness. Lao Tzu writes this, says, grasp it, lose it. The secret waits for the insight of eyes unclouded by longing. How to experience this primal force of the universe, these natural waves of longing and attraction, and like the mature lover, be able to have unclouded eyes. It's natural that these waves of intensity come. The object is not, as some people misunderstand it, that we're trying to get rid of the intensity of life and have a kind of indifferent detachment. Not at all. It's how to feel the fullness of this life and yet maintain a sense of clarity and balance in the midst that we can really live it fully, not be possessed, and not deny it. The path of the lover is not to in any way vanquish or deny life force. It's really to begin to recognize the dance we have around intimacy and recognize that dance as the grounds of opening and awakening. Wherever in your life these forces are playing out, and they're playing out in everybody's life, we all, we all have it going on, whether it's in the form of wanting more or trying to control or withdrawing or withholding. Wherever it plays out, that's the place where we have the potential to awaken our hearts. That's the place. Everybody I run into wants intimacy and fears intimacy. It's one of the kind of broad universals I've come to. (laughs) We all have that. We really long for communion, each of us. It's what we most cherish and love. And we all have our routines for how we, whether we call it sabotage it or avoid it or don't fully let go into it. We all have both sides. The way the Buddha describes it 
we get identified as a separate self. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of a sequence in our development, but we get locked in there as feeling separate. We lose sight of our sense of belonging. And we're afraid of communion. We're afraid of the, the loss of our sense of who we are. Our whole being gets organized around this sense of separation. We have a million projects going to protect ourselves and to get more for ourselves. And so really, falling in love is a very threatening thing to that sense of separation. Any two people, once they get past the honeymoon period, find that out. To be free, to live in love, the separate self, at least at times, needs to be transcended so we can sense and live out of a sense of communion, of togetherness. And that is the death of a separate identity. That's what is meant by dying into freedom, the letting go of the separate self and into communion. What it means is letting go of of the way we believe in our thoughts about the world. We have all these thoughts of planning and worrying and figuring out that all kind of reinforce a sense that we're separate. And meditation practice is to begin to not believe in them so much. You know how the instructions each time are to recognize thoughts, but then to open back into the flow of what's happening this moment and this moment. To begin to sense our connectedness with life that is not limited by and defined by thinking of ourselves as separate. Again, Rumi. You can't talk, give a talk on the lover and not draw on Rumi a lot. At least I can't. <laughs> Love is the sea of not being. And there intellect drowns. Thoughts of a separate self dissolve. Here, swimming ends, always in drowning. So lift up your robe. So as not, you lift up your robe, so as not to wet the hem. Come, drown in the sea a thousand times. You lift up your robe, so as not to wet the hem. Come, drown in the sea a thousand times. Again and again, we get caught in that separateness and that fear, and we're called upon to let go and let ourselves go and become that ocean. Let ourselves get wet in it. So one way of understanding the shadow lover is really as a separate self that's just holding tight onto life, holding tight, wants to let go in love and live in this fullness of communion, but there's all this conditioning to hold on and not get wet. The path of awakening is simply to begin to recognize how we're holding on so tight. It's not to get rid of it, not to drop all our conditioning to grasp and resist, but rather to start to wake up to how we keep our distance, how we keep ourselves separate to wake up and bring care and presence to how it's happening. The experience of awakening is to discover our loving hearts through being with our reactive dance. So let's look at how that's possible. And we'll again take both sides, the attachment and the resistance. How do we be with attachment? 
How do we be with attachment when it's very possessive or very jealous or very obsessive? Because that happens to all of us. Most people I know at some time in their lives have felt totally smitten by somebody, like absolutely, totally taken and filled with intense longings and obsessive thinking and the whole thing. And just to give you one story that was really useful to me, this was a client several years ago who came in and described how she was absolutely obsessed with a man that was totally unavailable. He was married and just not available. And so she was really ashamed because she just had these uncontrollable fantasies and she was either fantasizing how he would reject her and how defective she was or how shameful it would be if he didn't reject her. You know, just any way she went, it was misery and pain and suffering, but it was just going and going and going. And she felt really embarrassed that she was caught up in so much obsession because she had gone to many retreats and been practicing meditation for many years, so why couldn't she control her mind and go back to the breath? Not a prayer, you know. (laughs) So nothing engaged her attention. I mean, she really couldn't pay a lot of attention to work or to friends or anything, and every strategy she tried just didn't work. And she kept swinging back and forth uh, between getting obsessing about having something work out to praying that she could drop the obsession and be free again. And she felt really humiliated by being so out of control. So in therapy, one of her most broad realizations was how much she was at war with her experience. Every step of the way, here is these intense life energies in her, and on every level she was at battle, at war with herself. That's the definition of suffering, by the way. At war with what's happening. When the currents get that strong, it's very easy and mostly likely that we'll get possessed, at least for a time, that we'll get carried away, that we'll get reactive. And fighting is not only fruitless, it's exhausting. It really is. And so what she found is that she was just punishing herself. She was having these enormous waves of energy. She was fighting them unsuccessfully and then punishing herself with guilt and just it was a downward spiral. So we started to explore what would happen if she agreed to her experience, if she began to say yes to what was happening. And that's what she did. And we'd do it together. We'd sit and have kind of out loud meditation. She'd say, okay, this is coming up. I'd say, okay, say yes to it, agree to it, make room. And for a while she'd kept going off on long chains of thought and then she'd realize she was thinking and say yes to that and then try to get under the thoughts and feel what was going on and feel the clenching and the grasping and the wanting and the hurting. And, and, and all we did was keep saying yes to it, keep agreeing, but to do it in a very tender way, a gentle way, a sincere way. Eventually what loomed up when she, after a certain number of times of being totally lost in the story, was a deep welling up of grief and loneliness. Then she had to say yes to that. Yes to grief and loneliness. And then underneath that, just the longing for communion. In some way, this man represented to her the experience of being totally at one, known, loved, at one. 
So just this longing for communion and just say yes to that. So she just kept saying yes to that. And eventually the story dropped away more and more until it just simply became, she was saying yes to this kind of soft, tender space in her heart that just loved and wanted to love more, that loved being alive, that wanted to live fully. Saying yes allowed her to connect with what was real. And it took time. It was not all at once. But this is the path of bodhicitta, of the awakening heart, that we simply start with what presents itself, whatever it is, even the grasping and the obsession, and that we make room and say yes, that there's an honoring or a bowing to what arises, saying yes to the joys and to the sorrows and the sadness and the loneliness, really bowing to it all, Because what we find under all the grasping and attachment is this basic life force of longing to love and be loved. It's under there. It connects us with our essence. So we attend to the shadow lover, and in attending to the shadow lover, we connect with the pure essence that energizes the whole show. So that's saying yes to the attachment side. Now what about when we get armored, when we resist, when we bury our hearts? It's part of our conditioning when things are painful, especially if we've already been wounded and traumatized in relationships. It's part of our conditioning to have this reflex of pushing away, of hardening, of tightening against what's called the feminine, against the soft or caring or loving energies. It's our conditioning. It's very hard to say yes to the pain of our wounds. That's kind of counter-conditioning. Do you know what I mean? So what happens is, as we go through life, things get re-triggered all the time. We constantly are resurrecting our armor consciously or unconsciously, and in some way basically saying no to life, pushing, pushing it away, judging, blaming. Wherever it's possible, we'll blame ourselves or someone else and keep a distance because it's too dangerous to be vulnerable. James Baldwin writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. We hold to our judgments, to our armor, to our blaming, because we sense that if we let it go, we'll be forced to touch directly pain. So for many, the energy of the mature lover is blocked until we're able to forgive ourselves or others until we're willing to feel the pain of our woundedness, of our vulnerability, of what has been called our soft spot. Some years ago at a retreat at IMS, one of the teachers was talking about forgiveness and described how her way of kind of cultivating a forgiving heart was just to spend weeks and weeks at a retreat forgiving everything that happened that was at all difficult. If she got any pain in her body, she'd immediately go, I forgive this pain. Any emotional clutching, I forgive this fear. A teacher giving a Dharma talk that was going on too long, I forgive the teacher giving the Dharma talk, you know. <laughs> Whatever it was. So she just, it became this reflex to 
feel contraction and go, ah, I forgive this. And although sometimes it was mechanical in words, her intention truly was to let go of resistance and just feel what was there. So after she gave that talk, I only had a few days left of the retreat, but I did it then. And, and since then, I'll periodically, when I'm feeling like I'm in a aversive state where some part of me is just kind of going like this to life and going off into my head, I'll just keep attending to what's happening, going, ah, forgiven, forgiven. I don't even say I forgive because that creates an I that's doing forgiving. Do you know what I mean? Just forgiven. This is forgiven. And there's an, a very beautiful softness and space that arises when our intention is to let go of resistance and connect with what's there. What happens is we connect with the lover energy. In a moment of forgiving what is painful, we touch right back into that place in us which longs to love and be loved because we connect with what's real and we feel that connectedness. doesn't mean to condone insensitive or unskillful behavior in us or others. And I've mentioned this many times in here, that when we talk about forgiving, it's to not push ourselves or others out of our hearts. It doesn't mean that in a behavior way we don't keep our distance or create boundaries that are wise, but to not close our hearts down. One of my best lessons in forgiveness was when I was married, lots of angry kind of clashes with my husband. And I found what I would do is I'd feel angry and I wouldn't act it out so much, but I'd harden and I'd feel an enormous amount of blame towards him. And inside, a lot of shame because I had this uncontrollable willing up of anger, which seemed like such a nasty thing. So what I started doing was as soon as I would feel anger, I'd start, and I muttered this to myself, I go, Forget, anger's forgiven, anger's forgiven. You know, and I just, I very consciously, intentionally would forgive the arising of anger. And I mention anger in particular because we have a very, if it's not conscious, a very unconscious, bad, wrong, I'm less than for feeling it. So what I would do is just kind of soften by just telling the anger, it's okay, it's okay to be there. And what happened is what was under the anger was revealed, which was a sense of hurt or vulnerability. And underneath that, a real longing for connectedness and a feeling of the pain of the distancing. And he was doing his own processing to make more room too. So what it allowed for us was to be able to have those strong feelings, those intense energies, but make enough room and give enough permission that we were able to connect with what was underneath them and be able to communicate. Now, it doesn't always work so well. There's times that by trying to say yes to anger, we're really saying yes in a self-righteous way, and then we act it out and create more. You know, there's all, this isn't to say a simple remedy, but there's an enormous power in beginning to say yes and forgive the energies that move through us. To not be possessed, but not to reject. Let's just take a moment. I invite you to do some reflecting, if you will. You don't have to sit up real tall, but just to sit in a way where you feel wakeful in here. And just scan and sense in your own life, and some of you may have already been doing this, where there's a relationship that 
triggers off one of these shadow lover type reactions where there's a difficulty that either you end up getting caught in attachment, demanding, asking, wanting, controlling, not getting enough, or aversion in some way, again, controlling, pushing away, blaming. And taking just some moments to recognize these natural conditioned responses that go on. And if you can bring to mind a situation where you'd might like to sense some more freedom around it and just remind yourself of what it's like to go into the shadow lover, to be reactive. And just to feel that in your body, in your heart, what it's like to either grasp on or push away to judge. It might be just mental thoughts of what's wrong with you or what's wrong with that person or what you want. Or it might be a real bodily feeling. And just saying yes to whatever arises in this exercise. If it's hard to connect with anything, just to say yes to that. If you're feeling sleepy this moment or numb, to say yes to that. Or if you're connecting with a very real experience to do with an important relationship to explore what it's like to forgive or say yes to all that that's about to have that intention to make a little more room for the movement of heart and mind in a wakeful way when we say yes we bring presence and care our intention is to become more free Yes to the guilt, yes to the fears, to the wanting, to the anger. To say yes to what's right here and now opens us to the essential life energies that are within our reactivity. And we'll finish this meditation at the end of our of our evening, but just sensing this way of relating by recognizing what's happening and immediately saying yes, or forgiven, or making room, opening your eyes if you'd like. When we start getting in the habit of doing this, of feeling this movement of experience in our body, the hopes, the fears, the blames, and recognizing it, and immediately making room. We're, we're establishing the grounds for one of the most beautiful qualities of the lover, which is appreciation. We say yes enough, we become that space which is saying yes. We become that caring, wakeful space of awareness. It takes a lot of practice to do that but it's really quite a beautiful process because we love to appreciate things, all of us. When we get into that space of gratitude or appreciation, there's a sense of really, this is who I am, because we're connected with the lover, which really feels like our essence. The practice is based on learning not to interfere. 
in a moment of mindfulness is a moment of being with what is around us and within us and not interfering, not trying to make it different, appreciating it as it is. There's no way we can see each other with any clarity, really see who a person is if we're trying to make them different for us. There's no way we can feel really seen or understood if someone else has an agenda and is trying to shape us. Vipassana, which means clear seeing, is based on this capacity to be with in a way that just honors this moment just how it is. So this is the path of the lover. This is the path of the lover in cultivating this capacity to see what's true and to appreciate life just as it's arising. And it can truly become a habit in moving through the world to to see each other, to see ourselves, and in that see the divine. So again, another reflection, just to take a moment, take a few breaths, and just bring to mind someone that's dear to you. Feel a sense of presence and feel that you're kind of calling their energy into the room. Bringing to mind someone that's dear and just simply seeing their goodness. Seeing their love, their care, (coughs) their sincerity. and bringing someone else to mind that matters to you. Seeing that being's essence, their divinity, their beauty, their goodness. Sensing their intentionality to love and be loved. And again, to be continued, to develop this capacity to look and see what's beautiful. What we pay attention to is what we are. It can become our habit to see the divine. You can open your eyes if you'd like. It can spread out to not those that we know, but to see everywhere. Just to have that capacity to appreciate in the natural world around us, With each breath, a sense of appreciation and connection. That is lover energy. This is an example of a young person's lover energy. Some of you, again, know this. This is uh, Maurice Sendak giving an example of comments from readers he's gotten. Do you you know Maurice Sendak, the children's illustrator and writer? He said, oh, there's so many. Can I give you just one that I really like? It was from a little boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. 
He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. <laughs> How's that for lover energy? <laughs> so saying yes to our lives when it's difficult, forgiving. When it's beautiful, appreciating, bowing to it. And in this way, gradually, we learn to honor, to bow to all of life. It's as one Zen master described it when he was answering the question, does God exist? He said, the other day, I was walking along the river. I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, completely gratuitous, simply there for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my two hands came together and I realized I was making gasho, prayer. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters, that we can bow, take a deep bow, just that, just that. So we practice by beginning with the life in our own beings that arises, learning how when it's painful and we have the reaction to push away, how to try to open some, and how when it's something beautiful to bow, to sense wonder, to sense the mystery. So we'll just end with a short meditation, hopefully to bring these pieces together you need to stretch your legs for a moment, please do so, and then coming and sitting upright. <coughs> this will be very short, but do set yourself in a way where you feel comfortable and alert. And just take a few deep breaths. And as you breathe now, let the breath be natural and easy and relax through your body. And as you relax through your own body, allow yourself to be aware of any places of vulnerability, what's been described as the soft spot, where there might be any discomfort, or if you choose there's some issue in your life with someone where there is this grasping or fearing in your body that's something you experience right now, to let this be here. To make room for any dukkha, discomfort. And as you do, as you did before, to let your response be a very tender yes forgiving, allowing, making room for what's there. For some, it helps to lightly touch the heart or the cheek as a way of truly sending a message that this is okay. And you might experiment with that if you haven't done that, just to lightly touch yourself. It's a very radical thing to truly offer tenderness, forgiveness, space to what we habitually push away. So we begin by sensing vulnerability, saying yes, offering forgiveness and care. <laughs> <laughs>
and taking some breaths and from the same place of presence and care allowing yourself to bring to mind your own experience of goodness your essence recognizing your own sincerity in being your intention to love the joy you take in feeling connected your beauty and even if it's difficult to connect with content let it be your intention to to acknowledge and bow to what is beautiful just to have that as an intention connects us with ourselves to feel your own aliveness and appreciate your natural goodness offering the wish may I rest in natural great peace may I be free to live fully to love fully that is the longing of the lover energy to be free to experience life fully and then in this spirit to bring to mind someone who's dear to you to allow yourself to see their vulnerability this being's wants and fears where there's dissatisfaction tenderness or vulnerability and feel your natural caring to make room saying yes for that being's pain and vulnerability to sense your care I care about your suffering and feeling your breath and opening the awareness to sense that being's beauty the longing to love and be loved the longing to be free to live that person's sincerity their aliveness and sense their natural goodness may you too rest in great and natural peace may you be free to love to live fully and then just to bring to mind one more person again sensing their vulnerability their soft spot where they're afraid where they're hurting feeling your care your compassion the natural response of the heart to sensing vulnerability and sensing also this person's innate beauty and goodness seeing the divine the life in their eyes 
the longing to live and love fully in their hearts. And offering this person to that prayer, may you rest in natural great peace. May you be free to live fully, to love fully. And then opening the heart of compassion and awareness to include all beings. So as a community or sangha, we can send our prayer that all beings may benefit from the awakening of heart and mind, that all beings may find that freedom to live fully, to love fully, to truly rest in peace. We close as we open tonight with the chanting of Om. Please take a deep in-breath and then exhale. And inhaling together to begin. Oh.